You're listening to ReachMD. Welcome to Genetically Speaking, produced in cooperation with the American Society of Human Genetics, advancing human genetics in science, health, and society. Now here's your host, Dr. Robert Green, geneticist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, director of the Genomes to People Research Program, and associate professor of medicine, Harvard Medical School. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Green, your host for an interview today with Howard Levy. And we're speaking to Dr. Levy, an assistant professor in the Division of Internal Medicine and the McCusick-Nathan Institute of Genetic Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Howard, you're uh, someone who's been in this game a long time, and I know that you're particularly interested in sharing portals and in integrating genomics and primary care. Tell me a little bit about what's exciting you right now in the future of this area. For me, the, the latest excitement is the power that the EHR can bring to all of us in medicine. And I know that a lot of my colleagues consider EHRs to just be another unfunded mandate that the government has thrust upon us. From my perspective, though, I think it's finally a chance to move away from stacks and stacks of pieces of paper that tend to get lost and hard to derive any information from. And as we think about now storing our medical information in a real database and allowing the computer to do the analysis for us and help us think on a higher level. It excites me to more easily integrate the genetic tools that are coming faster and faster and help us to drive genetically informed medicine, folding that into what we already are starting to understand about environmental risk factors, coexisting medical conditions, and really recognizing that every individual patient is a conglomeration of all these different factors, using that then to help inform a differential diagnosis when a new set of symptoms arise, helping that to inform more accurate diagnostic testing, getting to the correct diagnosis a little bit faster, and then using it to inform our therapies, whether that's pharmacogenetic testing to choose the best drug for this particular patient, or recognizing when treatment isn't working quite as well as we'd like, and choosing what the next drug should be. Now, Howard, that's a great vision, but how is that actually going to operationalize? Because what I've heard is that doctors are just troubled by the volume of information that they have either in a paper file or in an electronic file. And they, they, they have to go pawing through it. They don't really make sense of it. And that we need some sort of more intelligent systems to massage that data and serve it up to us. How's, how's that going to work? Absolutely. So in part, and I think this is the big fear of many of my colleagues, in part it does require all of us in medicine to document our data a little bit differently, to put it into a place where the computer can recognize it and process it for us. What excites me about this, though, is that tools such as natural language processing and the IBM Watson computer that we heard about at this meeting this week, those tools, I think, are going to enable technology to let us still do a lot of what we used to do in a similar way to how we used to do it. We can dictate and use voice recognition to translate that into words. We can then have computers translate those words back into structured data. And for those of us who are adept at it and willing to do so, we can click some buttons and very discreetly document. It doesn't look as pretty as we're used to it looking, but the return on that investment is that all that data is now stored in a way that the computer can process it. What's also nice, if I may, is that the patient portal enables us to take some of the workload off of the physician. Not that I want to spend any less time talking to my patient, but if I can use the patient portal to ask questions of my patient that are maybe mundane isn't quite the word, but routine questions that oftentimes don't have much value for today's specific topic, 
if I can push that out to the portal, have the patient give me that information electronically, mm -hmm. present it to me in the EHR, and let the patient and me together sit down and look at that as well as today's concerns, and we spend our time, our very limited time, talking about what really matters today, and let that other stuff fall to the background and only pop up when one of us thinks it's important, or when the computer recognizes that something's important but we fail to think of it, that's the beauty of using clinical decision support. That makes a lot of sense. Now what I've heard uh, as examples are, for example, we might not see a pattern in someone becoming more anemic, but the computer could spot over time a trend and somehow with an algorithm know to alert us to it. So that, that sort of makes sense to me with chemistries and blood counts. How do you see this working with genomics, which is so much more complex and where we have a very, a very much more um, artisanal approach at the moment in our medical genetics world? Right, so that's a big challenge, and I don't think we're going to see that this year or next year. There's a lot of work to do before that's ready. But I really think it's just, in an oversimplified manner, it's just a matter of scaling it. So computers are all ready to store the blood count evolving over time. All we're talking about with the genome is instead of a CBC with 8 or 10 or 12 parameters or a complete metabolic profile with 20 or so parameters, now we're talking about 3 million parameters. But it's still just scaling how many parameters. And way less than that if we're really talking about the medical exome, for example. Exactly. But, but it shouldn't matter at that point. And Another way of thinking about how simple it would be is that while a sodium value could range from as low as 115 or 118 up to 150 or 155, the genome basically only has four options, A, C, G, or T. So while there are millions of data points, there are fewer options at each of those points. And really we're getting into information technology stuff that is not my strength and maybe not yours either. But I think it's all just stuff that we can ask our really smart IT colleagues to figure out for us and then present it back to us. The other point I'll make is that the genome is not the whole answer. And I and, and you and others have argued for years that still our single best, most informative, and cheapest genetic test is the family history. So we need to be capitalizing Absolutely. on that as well. Strangely, the family history is perhaps hard, much harder to scale than the genome because the genome is a digital code and it sort of scales in, in, in that way itself. Now you're a primary care doc. Absolutely. And, and uh, you're really one of the few primary care docs who's got this foot deep in the genomics world. I know you've heard this a million times that primary care docs aren't really ready or don't, aren't interested in being ready. What do you say to people who, who, who say that? For the most part, I don't want you to change your practice at all. What I really want is for the computer to help you along and remind you when you need to do something. I would like my colleagues to spend a little more time doing the family history truly for the sake of family history rather than for the sake of meeting meaningful use or billing requirements. And again, I think we can capitalize on the patient portal to allow that patient to give us that family history information so the doctor doesn't need to spend as much time collecting it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Robert C. Green from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, and I'm speaking with Dr. Howard Levy from the Division of General Internal Medicine, McCusick and Nathan Institutes of Genetic Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. So, Howard, sharing is a, a big responsibility for the patients. And at this moment in history, it seems to me there's a very small number of patients, relatively speaking, who are taking advantage of these patient gateways that everyone's trying to profit. 
Do you think that uh, we just have to wait for the computationally unsophisticated people to die off until everybody wants to use this? Or how is it going to come about that uh, this dream of patients being more interactive with their healthcare system uh, can evolve? So, unfortunately, I think part of the answer will be what you just said. There's a long, long history that new innovations, at least in medicine, but I suspect it's everywhere, take about 17 years to be widely accepted, with the exception of the smartphone and some other cool gadgets. So part of this might just be a slow evolution. But I think we can also use some grassroots efforts, and we can also use the cool factor, maybe not as cool as the smartphone, but if those of us who are enthusiastic talk it up to our patients and they recognize some benefit and talk it up to their friends, their friends then bring it back to their docs and get them excited and be less afraid and more enthusiastic themselves, I think we can start to get some incremental growth and that can logarithmically expand as each of them tells you friends. Now, I'm, I'm wearing a, a Fitbit here um, and it's pretty digital. You're wearing an analog watch with a second hand that's slowly ticking around. Um, what do you think about Apple and other high-tech monitoring devices that are really going to give people information about their own health care? Uh, let me just ask you a two-part question. Do you think that's good or bad? I'm a big fan of people taking part of their health care. Uh, my father is a physician, and he practiced in the era where it was the doctor's job to take care of the patient. We live in an era where medicine is really becoming a service industry. We're professionals. We're providing a professional service. In many ways, we're different from all the other professionals. We're not lawyers. We're not accountants. Uh, in some ways, I wish we were more like them. But I think anything that gets the patient more engaged not only makes my job easier in terms of me not having to do as much work, it also makes my job easier because my patient is taking care of him or herself, and I'm just helping inform them how to do that. So I believe that too, Howard, but I get troubled by, for example, unregulated supplement markets that are marketed to people, and I get troubled by um, this vast netherland between acceptable medical care and sort of marketed nonsense. And uh, I wonder how we're going to draw the line as people become more self-regulating and self-empowered. Uh, I guess they get choices to make bad decisions, too. How do, you, how do you see that playing out? They do. And if you look at the history of medicine, for years before our current system existed, there were many different guilds who each proffered their own version of health care. And eventually, the medical profession won out and took ownership of it. And I think we may be at the beginnings of seeing that pendulum swing back a little bit. Uh, maybe not even so much at the beginning. We have what's often called alternative or traditional or there are other words for ways of practicing medicine. It's not how I practice medicine. But I recognize that if my role is as a professional advisor, then my responsibility is to those who want to avail themselves of my style of medicine. And if a patient decides that they want to use another means of health care for themselves, I think that's their right. Well, now that's a remarkably liberal philosophy. It almost sounds like you don't think there's a particular ground truth in there that uh, you would advocate for. Oh, I believe very firmly in the style of medicine that I practice. If I didn't, I don't think I'd be a very good physician. But I also recognize that trying to convince someone who disagrees with my style to take my advice is futile. And that's what would make me burn out. I sleep at night because I know that I'm helping patients, or at least I'm trying to help patients, 
who want to do it the way I think it works. Now, if companies come and say, hey, we're going to give you genetic uh, results that will allow you to pick the best skin cream or allow your child to be the best soccer athlete, and we, I think we'd agree that that's pretty fraudulent at this moment in time, do you have a feeling, an opinion for, for how regulated that should be? And, and if you do, how far does that regulation go into the arena of uh, more legitimate direct-to-consumer genetic testing? Well, those are tough questions. I don't pretend to have an answer. Um, my liberal or libertarian viewpoint would, would argue that uh, to each his own and buyer beware. If you choose to go that route, you've invested your funds, your resources. I hope you don't do any harm to yourself. I'm here to help if it's working and you want additional assistance. And I'm here to help if it's not working and you want to try it a different way. That is pretty libertarian. So I think, uh, is there anything else, Howard, you'd like to tell people before we wrap up? Because you've got uh, a pretty remarkable and different perspective on this than I think most people at this meeting. I think I would just want to emphasize that for those who want to incorporate family history and genetic data into their healthcare, it can be very challenging both to acquire it, store it, and understand it. The good news is that we're starting to see the vendors such as Epic and others begin to develop tools for actually acquiring that family history information. Once they get there, it would be a next logical step for them to take the information that we geneticists are generating to help understand the connection between genetic variation and health, between family history findings and health. Feed that then into real clinical decision support algorithms. And I think we're going to see the electronic health record actually save the day and make it easier for all of us to apply genetic principles in the practice of everyday medicine. Fantastic. I, I think you and I will have to talk offline because our MedSeq project, as you may know, is actually giving back genomic information to primary care doctors in a randomized clinical trial format. And that's going right into the electronic medical record where we're going to follow outcomes and see, what, see if, if your future comes true. So uh, my thanks to our guests, Dr. Howard Levy um, of Johns Hopkins University. We've been discussing the integration of genetics into primary care and all of the issues associated with sharing portals and EHR. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Green from Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Be sure to visit the website for this program at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Genetically Speaking on ReachMD. If you missed any part of this discussion, you can download this segment and others in the series at ReachMD.com slash genetics. Thank you for listening.